The Christian life is often described in the Bible as a pilgrimage. That's why the song that we have just sung is such an appropriate song and prayer. It's an older song. We haven't sung it as often here. Guide me, O thou great Jehovah, pilgrim through this barren land. Friends, I hope that we all realize that we are, um, we are in this journey on earth looking forward to our heavenly home that God has promised to us. And just like uh, the Israelites in the, in the book of Exodus, they have, they have exited Egypt. They have left the land of slavery, but they have not yet arrived in the promised land. That's us, dear friends. That's us. We have left, hopefully, all of us who are Christians. That should be true of all of us who are Christians, genuine Christians. We have left the, the, the land of, of slavery to sin. We have not yet arrived in the celestial city, as John Bunyan said it. I pray that uh, this song will, will, be, will encourage you throughout the week and uh, ask the Lord to give you his guidance in all that you are going through in your life. And we are asking that from the Lord as a congregation as well. Well, friends, I encourage you to open Scripture to the book of 1 Timothy chapter 3. I'll be reading from verse 1 to 7. If you did not bring a Bible with you this morning... I encourage you to look in the pew in front of you. Um, on the back of it, there should be some black Bibles. Uh, look something like this. We encourage you to grab one, open it to page number 992. If you don't have a Bible or if you don't own an ESV Bible, we'd love for you to, to use these Bibles, take them home, have them. We'd love for you to, to be yours. And hopefully, we encourage you to read it. And we pray that it will be a blessing to your soul. This morning, as we are looking at this passage, you may wonder, we are... We're no longer in the book of Titus. Our congregation is working this, this semester, this spring semester, through the book of Titus. But today, we are taking a little detour from the book of Titus, and we're working through the book of 1 Timothy. And that's because for the last five weeks, um, we have been working through the qualifications of elders, uh, which is a passage we work through in Titus 1. And uh, we have looked through all the qualifications of elders in the book of Titus, but there are some extra qualifications in the book of Timothy. And we said, if we're looking at this theme of, of qualifications for elders or pastors, let's look at those who are not, let's look at those qualifications that are not covered in Titus, but are only appear uh, uniquely in the book of Timothy. So we're going to look at these this morning. Here's the word of the Lord for us as we approach God's word. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil." Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us. Would you join me in prayer, asking the Lord to bless the preaching of his word for our hearts?
Father, we thank you that you are giving us your word to be proclaimed, to be heard. Oh, Lord, we pray now that you, by your spirit, would speak to our hearts. Make this word clear to us. We pray that these words would be your words for us. In the name of Christ, for his glory we pray. Amen. Amen. First Timothy is a letter that Paul writes to this young pastor who is pastoring the church of Ephesus. Um, several years ago, we have gone through a sermon series just through this uh, book of First Timothy, a book that has all kinds of instructions for God's church. And the passage we just read, uh, the instructions relate specifically to how the church should think about those whom it calls for spiritual leaders, for pastors, for overseers, for elders. The, the word that we have here for this office is the word of overseer. Look at verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. Uh, this, this expression is an expression that Paul uses elsewhere. Actually, he uses it a total of five times in the letters of uh, Timothy to Timothy and to Titus. It's a phrase by which Paul emphasizes the goodness of what he is about to say. This saying is trustworthy. Now, we don't know if Paul is the one who came up with the saying, or this saying was circling around in the community. So Paul simply says, this saying that is going around, or this saying I'm about to say is good, is trustworthy. What's the saying? The saying is, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Friends, being the overseer or an overseer for the church is a noble task. The office of overseeing is not simply um, the notion that we would have today as someone who might be a trustee or a board of directors. That's not the idea. Those titles often communicate a very wrong idea of what the office of an overseer is for the church. Being an overseer over the life of the church is not about making decisions in a board meeting or signing off documents on behalf of the church. Oh no, friends, being an overseer for the church is about shepherding God's people, caring for them, teaching them, exhorting them, rebuking them when necessary, correcting, equipping them for the ministry, and being an example for them. This task is a noble task. In Acts 20, Paul tells us why the work of overseeing is a noble task. Because overseers are called to shepherd the church of God. The church which God purchased with his own blood, says Paul in the book of Acts. I love how one of the commentators said, to God, the church is the most precious thing on earth. He had to purchase it with God's own blood. Friends, if you're visiting with us this morning and you, you may not think very highly about the church, perhaps you're even skeptical. Someone invited you this morning to church and you're not really sure if this is your thing you should be worried about or this is the thing you should be pursuing, this idea of church. Friends, just realize, perhaps you're not even 
perhaps you're a Christian and you just have a very low view of the church. You think you can be a, a really good Christian apart from belonging to the church. You have a very low view of the church. Friends, if, if any of these describe you, uh, realize that to God, the church is something very precious. God gave the blood of his own son for the church. So therefore, those whom, to whom God entrusts the office of overseeing, this reality he calls the church, oh friends, that is a, that is a very noble, that is a very weighty responsibility. This responsibility requires men who are called by God, men who have a desire to be in this role, but also men who must be examined and, test and tested regarding their personal life. It requires men who meet the qualifications that God has written and determined for this task. Uh, look at how these qualifications in this passage are introduced. Look at verse 2. Therefore, an overseer must be. Must be. Look again at this phrase in verse 7. Moreover, he must be. Did you get that? Actually, between these verses, between verse 2 and verse 7, the translators repeat this verse, this verb must be a few more times to carry the, the heavy tone of this requi these requirements must be there. We can't treat them lightly. Oh, friends, do you hear the tone of urgency in making sure that the elders, the pastors of a church, the overseers of a church, are men who meet these qualifications? I wonder why such a strong emphasis. Why so many times we have this focus on must be. Is it perhaps because one of the areas where a church can fail and reap tragic consequences long term is to affirm men for that office who do not meet these God-given qualifications? Oh, friends, Church leadership is not having trustees or board members. That's not about that. There are constitutions that, that have these offices there and, and give unbiblical responsibilities for those roles and put men in those roles who don't meet the biblical qualifications. Such churches are in great peril long term. By God's grace, we have been working through a constitution that, that gets us closer to the biblical language. But, but realize that God wants us, I love how one, one, one commentator said, God wants us to know that a properly qualified elder is a non-negotiable requirement for the government of God's household. That's why, dear friends, for the past few weeks, we have gone in very slow motion, perhaps the slowest motion we've ever gone to in working through a passage of Scripture. Through five verses, we've taken five sermons. Um, and uh, today we're looking at a separate passage to complete this mini uh, topic, if you will, about qualifications of elders. Many of the qualifications that Paul has given to Titus already appear in the book of 1 Timothy in various ways, various different words, but, but there's so much overlap between these lists, and yet there are at least three other qualifications that only appear in Timothy and not in Titus. So what we want to do today, we want to look at these uh, unique qualifications that appear only in 1 Timothy 3 so that we complete our sort of study 
of these qualifications for elders. Now, here's three qualifications. By the way, we will not be going uh, exegetically through this. We will not cover everything in this passage in 1 Timothy 3. We will only cover these qualifications that don't show up in Titus. So here's the first one. An elder must not be quarrelsome. Look at verse 3. In this list of negative qualifications, which we also saw in Titus, he says, not a drunkard, not a violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome. Not quarrelsome. This word can also mean uh, contentious or not contentious, not provoking strife. Friends, do you realize that the Bible says that provoking strife is a fruit of our sinful passions? Book of James. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? My friend, are you in an argument right now with someone? Well, not right now physically in the act of arguing. But are you in somewhat of an argument with someone these days? You realize that it, the cause of that could be your passions that are, are at war within you. When others sin against us, we have a tendency to respond sinfully. Because we are sinners, after all. And one of the ways we can respond sinfully is by starting a fight of words, becoming argumentative with someone else or others. Friends, this can happen in our families. This can happen among friends. This can happen in a workplace. This can happen even in the church. It shouldn't be this way. As a matter of fact, the book of Proverbs has some very, very strong warnings against people who sow discord among the people of God. The book of Proverbs 6 says, There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to Him. Whenever you have that introduction, there's this amount of number of things the Lord hates, but there's one more extra thing that the Lord really hates. The focus is on that extra thing. Of course, all things, all the list. So here, here's a list of six things and then the seventh. The six things the Lord hates. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that deceives wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies. Those are six things the Lord hates. And here's the one that's an abomination to the Lord. And one who sows discord among brothers. Wow. It's an abomination to the Lord. God hates div division and fighting among his people. Friends, if you're a Christian, ask yourself, are you a person inclined to sow strife? Inclined to, to cause tension? Prone to start an argument? This is a matter for all Christians to guard against. For all of us, friends. But it's especially a key qualification for elders. 2 Timothy 2, the passage we read earlier, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. Black and white. Those called to oversee God's church must show a track record of not being quarrelsome. 
This does not mean that a pastor or, group, or, or elders should be passive-aggressive. It uh, doesn't mean that they should not bring up things that are, are troublesome and they need to be confronted. Pastoral work will often require pastors to address things that can produce resistance from the sinful flesh. But the issue is, can a person bring up things without wanting to start a fight of words? Can he address things, even those that are difficult to address, with a gentle spirit? So here are some application questions for us to consider uh, about people we might consider for elders. Is a man inclined to get into an argument easily? Do random things become a reason for arguing with others? Is a man able to listen to what others have to say without starting a verbally heated situation? If a person used to be quarrelsome, is there evidence of grace that such a pattern has been overcome? Is a person able to correct opponents with a gentle spirit when needed. There are times when the correction needs to be sharply. We will see that next week in Titus 1. But there are times when the correction needs to be with gentleness. Can a person do that? Oh, friends, how much damage can be avoided if the people called to lead God's church are men who are not quarrelsome? This is the first qualification we see in our passage that we are working through this day. Here's a second one, second qualification that Timothy has that's unique to Timothy from Titus. An elder must not be a recent convert. Look at verse 6. He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Now, the word recent convert can be translated as uh, being newly planted. He must not be newly planted in the Christian faith. The qualification Paul gives here refers to not being a new Christian. Now, friends, I want to clarify something very quickly here. Being a new Christian is a wonderful thing. Friends, we rejoice in having new Christians among us. We rejoice to have an increasing number of people who have been recently, uh, uh, have come to Christ through faith and repentance. It is a wonderful thing for a church to have new converts. But when it comes to the task of overseeing the church, this role is reserved for those who have not been recently converted. Now, Paul does not give us a time limit. He doesn't say a minimum of three months, a minimum of a, of a year. The point of the requirement is that the office of overseer requires a discernment in the faith and maturity in the Christian life that requires some time for growing it. A part of growing as a Christian is to grow in, in knowing one's own heart and realizing that there's areas in our own lives where we must grow and mature. As we grow in our Christian walk, we become aware of how our own passions can allure us, can deceive us. We become aware how easily we can become blinded. A new convert is not yet aware of these dangers and can become trapped in such 
blindness. Friends, if you, if you are a Christian, a new Christian uh, among us this morning, and I know we have several here. We have baptized uh, in the month of December. Uh, friends, we want to come alongside you and support you, encourage you. We want to also give you the warning that there are traps along the way. You should be aware about them. You should be cautious of them. So growing in the faith is a wonderful thing, but be aware of the, of the traps that are all are along the path. Again, is, is it bad to be a new convert? No, absolutely not. Just as a newborn child is a joy for a family, new converts are a joy for a church. But we don't give the responsibility of parenting to a newborn or to toddlers. The enthusiasm of those who are newly planted in the faith is a wonderful experience. It's encouraging to see. But for spiritual leadership in a church, this enthusiasm must be matched by a growing spiritual maturity. This requirement, I want to be very clear, is not about a person's age. Paul is not saying that a candidate should uh, be older. Some people have equated the word for elder with people who are older. When it comes to the office of eldering, shepherding, overseeing, there's no limit or, or qualification that somehow young men cannot meet the qualifications for this office. Age is not among the qualifications for eldering. We know that from the book of Timothy. From Timothy in particular, he had this problem in his pastoral work in Ephesus. Others looked down upon him because he was young. So Paul had to tell him, let no one despise your youth, but set the example, set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Here's Timothy, a young pastor, a young elder, a young overseer, and yet he was living with a maturity beyond his years. He was called to be an example even for older saints, an example in how he speaks, an example in how he conducts his, his life, an example in how he loves people, an example in how he, he lives a life of faith, in how he believes and trusts in God, in God's promises, an example in purity. Well, friends, I pray that God would bless our congregation with young men who can be an example for the rest of the congregation. Young men who have a maturity beyond their ears. Paul wants to be sure, though, however, that the qualification for elders is that a person should not be recently converted. Paul identifies one danger why we should not affirm as overseers those who are recently converted. He says, he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. What does it mean to fall or to become puffed up with conceit? What does that mean? It means becoming blinded, foolish, or proud. Pride, dear friends, has ruined a number of the angels in heaven who rebelled against God because of their pride. We are told that before destruction happens, pride shows up first. Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. I love the words of J.C. Uh, um, Riley, um, or Ryle, uh, in his very short book, 
uh, entitled Thoughts for Young Men. I highly commend that book for all our members, especially for our young men. He says at one point, um, pride sits in all our hearts by nature. We are born proud. Pride makes us rest satisfied with ourselves. Think we are good enough as we are. Stop our ears against advice. Refuse the gospel of Christ. Turn everyone to his own ways. Pride. Part of the maturing process is to examine how a person is fighting the lures of his own prideful thinking, his own prideful heart, his own prideful affections. Friends, growing in maturity goes hand in hand with growing in humility. We grow in maturity in the faith as we grow in humility, as we grow in fighting against our prideful thinking, as we grow in identifying and noticing the various ways pride grows in us. The consequence of becoming puffed up with conceit is that we fall into the condemnation of the devil. That's a big consequence. Falling into the condemnation of the devil. Now what does that mean? What does it mean to fall under the condemnation of the devil? There's at least two ways to, to interpret this phrase. On one side, it could mean falling under the condemnation that comes from the devil. Now on one side, we know that the devil loves to accuse God's children. Now one way you know that a condemnation comes from the devil is that his condemnation is always pushing you to run away from God. The devil never condemns you for the purpose of bringing you to repentance. The devil always condemns you for the sake of pushing you away further from God. Now the Holy Spirit also condemns us or convicts us. And it looks like condemnation, but he always does it with the purpose of bringing us back to the Lord, bring us back to God. The devil can condemn those who fall into various sins in a way to, with the motivation of pulling them or pushing them further away from God. This might be one possible interpretation. Another possible interpretation is that this condemnation of the devil is the same condemnation that the devil received. So when we fall, or when, when, when someone gets uh, puffed up with conceit, he may fall under the same condemnation as the devil. But I'm inclined to believe that the second interpretation is, is a more appropriate one here. Here's why. Because we know from the scripture that God opposes a proud. We don't need, I'm not as afraid of the condemnation of the devil against my pride. I am more afraid of the condemnation of God against my pride. That's a more weighty condemnation. And friends, be sure that if God did not restrain that condemnation against his highest angels, he will not restrain from us either. God opposes the proud. We need to be concerned about that. And therefore, we should be very cautious of this danger. I love how John Stott translates this whole verse. He says, he, an elder, must not be a recent convert or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. That's why humility, dear friends, is an important characteristic for elders and is such an important fruit of spiritual maturity. Young Christians, old Christians, be on guard 
let's be on guard against the dangers of becoming puffed up with conceit, developing an excessive opinion of our own abilities, developing spiritual blindness, and becoming proud. Here are some applications of how to, how to examine and how to assess this particular characteristic, both in our own lives and in the lives of others. How long, how long ago was a man converted? How long ago was a man converted? Again, we don't have biblical uh, limits, clear limits in terms, of, in terms of time. But but don't think just merely time. I think there's a sense of maturity here as well. Time alone may not produce maturity in some Christians. Just because someone was a Christian for a long time, it does not mean that he has the, the, the characteristics of spiritual maturity or of humility. So it's not just a matter of time, but of spiritual maturity as well. I love the questions that Thabitia Nebule in, uh, in his book, Finding Faithful Elders and Deacons, um, he gives these quick questions. How evident is a man's conformity to Christ? How evident is a man's conformity to Christ? Does a man demonstrate spirit-filled living, bearing the fruit of the Spirit? Does he respond with kindness, patience, and compassion in various situations? If he is young, does he have a maturity that is beyond his years? If he does, praise the Lord for that. We want to see that more and more. Does a man express awareness of his own pride? Does he appear blind to conceit? Or does he fight his pride like a Christian uh, by opening his life to others and submitting to them? Is there any evidence that the office of elder may tempt him to arrogance and exalting himself over others? These are some questions we can ask as we assess this particular qualification that an elder must not be a recent convert. Finally, as, uh, as Thabitian Abrila said in his book, in looking for reliable men, we cannot afford to minimize the importance of spiritual maturity and humility. Maturity and humility go a long way in protecting the church and the elders from the devices and schemes of Satan. Hence, may God bless us with elders who, who are characterized by this maturity and humility. And then finally, a final qualification that we see in, in this passage that's unique to Timothy versus Titus. An elder must have a good reputation with outsiders. An elder must have a good reputation with outsiders. Look at the final uh, verse that we read this morning, verse 7. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. This is the final qualification Paul gives to Timothy. It's amazing that having a good reputation with those outside the church is a qualification for the leaders of the church. Now, I want to be clear here. We can fall into a, an unintended uh, uh, trap just because someone has a good qualification among outsiders, outside the church, is not enough by itself uh, to be the, the qualification for elders. Uh, there are other qualifications that we also must keep in mind. But, but here's the bottom line. Just because someone appears to have all the qualities uh, that we talked about so far that are apparent to the people inside the church 
does not mean that we can ignore this final qualification of someone's reputation among those who are outside the church. If only Christians think well about a potential candidate, but non-Christians think poorly or have no positive regards for a potential candidate, friends, that is troubling for a church elder. In other words, does a man live with integrity and commitment to doing good, to living a, a wholesome, uh, godly life, both towards Christians, but also towards non-Christians, towards outsiders? Is he a saint in the church, but an untrustworthy man in the workplace, or in the classroom, or in the neighborhood, or in our families? How tempting it is to cut corners in our secular responsibilities in order to, or even in our, in our families with, with those who are non-Christians. Yet, we try to excel and be saints in the church. We might be tempted to become irresponsible, unreliable employees or citizens or family members, but pretend we are saints committed in the church. How often we do give Good reasons to the world to think poorly of Christians. Disqualification for having a good reputation among outsiders deals with living a life of integrity, both inside the church and outside the church. Disqualification does not mean that we can avoid being hated by others when we stand for Christ. We also need to say that Jesus warned his disciples that the world will hate us. I want to make sure we get both perspectives here. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, uh, Paul says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. But this is not what this qualification talks about. This qualification speaks about the integrity Christians need to have towards all people, even towards outsiders of the church. And by the way, this qualification is a command for all Christians. In Titus 3, verse 1, Paul, Paul tells Titus to remind them, to remind Christians to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. You hear that? We're all. First uh, Peter 2.12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, that means they might, they most likely might attack us and accuse us falsely, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. In other words, all believers are called to have a good reputation with outsiders. Yet, when it comes to the elders of the church, it is a qualification. If someone fails in this area, he is not yet ready to be entrusted the responsibility of shepherding. Of how Alexander Strauch said, a church's evangelistic credibility and witness is tied to the moral reputation of its leaders. Actually, in some situations, outsiders may know more about a person 
than those inside the church. Thus, an outsider, an outsider's opinion of a, a Christian leader's character cannot dismiss, be dismissed. Friends, let me ask you this. Do people outside the church know you to be the same person as you pretend to be in the church? They may not know the same degree of details. I get that. But is there a, an overlap and is there a synchronizing between the two? Well, friends, there's more to this than simply needing to have a good reputation towards outsiders. Notice a problem that Paul gives with this qualification. If someone does not meet this qualification, here are two dangerous consequences. The first one is, look at verse 7, so that he may not fall into disgrace. Oh, friends, if an elder candidate is viewed by others as an unreliable employee, as a dishonest manager or as a dishonest businessman or as a mean and rude family member who always likes to pick a fight, such views will bring dishonor not only on that man but also on the church and on the Lord Jesus Christ. But it doesn't stop there. That's not the only consequence. There's further consequences. Look again at verse 7. Such a man may also fall into a snare of the devil. It's amazing that this is the second time in this list of qualifications that Paul warns elder candidates about the devil. Interesting. Interesting. In verse 6, the danger of falling into the pride, into pride, leads someone to fall under the same condemnation as the devil. Now in verse 7, our lack of integrity with those outside the church puts us in danger into falling into a snare of the devil. The devil is putting up traps all around us. 1 Peter 5.8, the devil, we said 1 Peter 5.8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. How easy it is for us when we live a double life when the life we live towards Christians in the church doesn't match with the life we live towards others outside the church, one kind of life inside, one kind of life outside, how easy it is when we make those mistakes or we live this double life to try to cover that with more sins, with more lies, with more deception. Oh, friends, it's easy to fall into the snare of the devil. One, one lack of consistency in one area can easily lead us to fall into others and a host of other sins in order for us to cover our reputation with one or another. That's why we must seek to live the same kind of life both inside the church and outside the church. Sometimes a Christian's character can be more accurately assessed by those outside the church. So here are some qualification questions, some assessments. How does a prospective elder engage with the community outside the church? Would people outside the church recognize this person as being the same person as people in the church claim him to be? What do people at work think about a prospective elder? What do his neighbors think about a prospective elder? What do non-Christian family members say about a prospective elder? Some may not like that you are a Christian, 
and that you are pursuing godliness. Well, that's a different issue. But would they see in you a man of character? Would they see in you a man who loves God? Or see in you a man who loves to do good? A man who is a gentle spirit, not quarrelsome, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, and the list goes on and on as we have seen. If those who are not Christians would find out that a man is a lay pastor in a church, would they be surprised negatively? These are some questions for us to consider in this final qualification. Friends, we have looked at these passages uh, today in 1 Timothy 3 for the past few weeks in Titus 1 to see the biblical qualifications for pastors, elders, overseers. Today we have looked at what it means for an elder to not be quarrelsome, for an elder not to be a new convert, and for an elder not to, ha- or to have a good reputation with those outside the church. Friends, I want us to encourage that if you'd like to know more about these qualifications, more questions, how to, how to assess them, I want to recommend to you the book that I've already mentioned and quoted several times in these sermons by Thabitio Nebule, uh, Finding Faithful Deacons and Elders. I also want to commend to you the, the book by um, Alexander Strauch um, on biblical eldership. One of, the, one of the things I'd like for us to do as a congregation is after we're done with this sermon is to list all these qualifications both in Titus and in 1 Timothy 3. We're going to put them all in one document and we're going to make these list of qualifications available to you. And we might even select some of the top assessment questions and put them in a document for you so you can actually have it all compiled in one document so you can meditate on it, have it available as a tool so that when we think about who might be the man that God calls among us to join me in shepherding you as a congregation, we might have this as a resource so that God's word would be a guide onto our feet. We ask the Lord to be the one who guides us in this process, but we also recognize that God has given us instructions about this matter and we want to be faithful and we want to equip you with how to think about it in a biblical way. In a very real sense, dear friends, um, you realize that from this point forward, the whole church will become the pastor search committee. And we've been working through this list of qualifications slowly to equip you for this task. We pray that God, by His Spirit, will lead us well. Because this matter is so important. Would you pray with me? Oh God, you have led your people throughout history, through many, many experiences. Experiences of joy, experiences of trouble, experiences of slavery, experiences of wilderness, experiences of prosperity, experiences of spiritual revival. Oh Lord, we pray that you will continue to be our guide as a congregation. And Father, as we have taken time to listen and examine closely your instructions about those whom you are calling for the office of shepherding your people, Lord, we pray that you would help us as a congregation to take heart and listen well, pay careful attention to each of these qualifications. And Father, now give us discernment to know how to assess them in those around us, in our own lives. Father, we pray that you would guide us as a congregation to know who are the men that you are calling for this task for us. Father, we pray that your name 
would be associated with your realm, with your kingdom, with your rule over your people, and that we might be a representation of that people. Father, bless us as a congregation with faithfulness to you, and may your truth continue to abound in the fruit of the gospel among us. In the name of Christ and for his glory. Amen. Let's go ahead.